It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Current events swirling about our nation at present in mid-November 2020 are forcing me to rewind the clock in my World War II series and recall a few key events. So in this message, we're going to go back to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. Hey, this is Eric. The Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor at first glance appears to be nothing but disaster death and a solemn reminder of the depravity of our current world. But something is going to happen as a result of that disaster that will eventually bring light courage and the glimmer of hope back to the world. The good guys are going to finally awaken from their long nap. If you are interested in accessing the rest of this series on World War II, just go to ellersley.com forward slash daily. We are uh, continuing. I know for some people it may be hard to believe that Eric could come up with an excuse to continue a series unto 87 episodes. But uh, I, I am getting close to the end, but I, I'm even sort of adding a little padding in by uh, what I'm doing this week, which is sort of hearkening back. This is sort of like a, you know, have you have ever seen like a drama series or like a sitcom? They'll oftentimes go back and have these cheater episodes where they review things that happened in the past. And uh, that's sort of what I'm doing, but it's not the cheater version of it. This is because I feel it's important. And that is, there, I'm picking three different events that took place in the war. There's a lot of huge events in the war, but these three, I think, are particularly important for what we're going through now. If you live in the United States of America, and I know not everyone that is streaming this and not everyone that will listen to the podcast is in the United States of America, but it is a defining season for us where it is fairly obvious to us as the Church of Jesus Christ, I'm not talking Republican, Democrat, I'm saying to the Church of Jesus Christ that we're going one way or another and that there's really no middle ground right now. We are either going to choose truth and justice and righteousness or we are going to choose to throw them out. And the consequences of such a decision obviously are grave and they will affect world history. And so we just happen to be in this moment when the course of nations is being defined. I think it's pretty exciting to be alive right now. And it is a great privilege to be a carrier of the truth in such an hour. It is a great privilege to be assigned by God a burden right now to pray, to recognize that he has an agenda, no matter what the... Uh, world's agenda is, no matter what Satan's agenda is, he always is hatching plans. I mean, the, the devil always has something up his sleeve, and he just happens to be wearing it on his sleeve right now. It's no longer up his sleeve, it's on his sleeve, and we are witnessing it. And as a result, things are becoming more and more defined. And that's sort of what I want to deal with today is I'm going to hearken back to uh, 1941, very specifically December of 1941. So for those of you that know your United States history, something is going to happen in December of 1941 that is going to shift the course of our nation and shift the course of world history. And uh, so as a result, it's, it, there's something that is akin that I want to bring out and just draw it to the surface just to remind us as the saints of God how to reason and how to think in a time like this. So it's called the classic overplay. I've had various uh, different names for this, uh, the classic overreach. Uh, the, I, I did have uh, the pearl at great price, and uh, that was a very creative title, but it sounded too, too much like I was just going to 
I was misquoting a scripture. You know, I didn't want to get that notion in someone's head. So, uh, but this is going to be dealing with Pearl Harbor and the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the significance of that because it's a terrible thing. If we were to look at it in the history books, we're going to see a lot of uh, death, a lot of destruction, and we're going to say, boo, that's terrible. And yet, in a strange way, it is a gift to our nation. In a strange way, it was a gift to Great Britain. In a strange way, it was a gift to Europe. In a strange way, it was, I could start naming nations. It was a gift to the world. Isn't that a, an odd thing that a bombing of Pearl Harbor could be a gift? And that's what I want to go through is sometimes that which, well, I shouldn't even say it that way. I should just say always. You see, what the enemy means for evil, God turns. He converts towards a different end. And God always is going to win. And everything in the end, it's like a game of chess. If any of you guys are familiar with chess, that word check. Okay, check is an intimidating word, right? But checkmate is really the word we're after, the phrase we're after, right? And that's what God is very good at. It doesn't matter how backed up he is. The enemy's like, check, 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 check. And then God goes, checkmate. And the enemy's like, what? How did he do that? How, do you, how could you be in a defensive position over and over and over again, play after play, and then suddenly move the enemy into checkmate? Well, he's very good at this game called chess. You want to take on God at the game of chess? Watch out. I've got some wild turkeys out the window there. That's sort of fun. I wonder what symbol that could be in the midst of all this. <laughs> December 6, 1941. So the date that is going to be very defining in American history is December 7th, 1941. So I'm going one day before that, and I just want to give sort of an understanding of what is happening at this exact time. America is asleep. There's reasons for that, but we are dull in our senses as a country at this exact hour. We're in the midst of a great depression. So for those of you that have ever studied, remember, I remember in school I had to read The Grapes of Wrath. Boy, that is a miserable book as far as I'm concerned. I'm not saying the literary style is bad. I'm just saying it's sort of a depressing meditation. And that's the world in which America is in at this exact hour. We have been suffering from an economic breakdown to the point where everyone is thinking about themselves. Everyone is just trying to survive. And so issues over in Europe, uh, Adolf Hitler is doing all sorts of evil stuff over there, but you know what? That's someone else's business. That's not ours. We're trying to survive. So as a result, because we're all self-focused, we are totally uh, disconnected from what's actually happening in the world. So I'm going to say we are sucking our thumb. Uh, that's what America was doing at this time. We're trying to, and that's, that's a self-pacifying uh, thing to do so that we could just sort of see if we can make it through this difficult hour. We're desperately, desperately wanting to ignore the world's current woes. We're uninterested in Hitler's agenda. Now, I want you to just look at that list, and then I'm going to click the slide, and you're going to notice that everything is going to change in one day. Watch this. Watch this. This is amazing. December 7, 1941, America is wide awake ready to embark upon a new economic boom. We're literally in one day going to shift from a Great Depression into a wartime economy and we are going to explode as an economy. It's just one of the weirdest things. Isn't that strange that actually being bombed at Pearl Harbor is going to shoo away the Great Depression? I mean, that is like one of the weirdest things, but that's actually what's gonna happen. We are grabbing our weapons, not sucking our thumb. And we're desperately eager to jump into the fray. We're not disinterested in trying to fall back asleep. And we're wholly engaged in Hitler's agenda. 
This happened in one day, and yet what caused it was actually a work of evil. And so sometimes the work of evil actually backfires. That's why I'm calling this the classic overplay. So what made the difference? So on December 7th, 1941, when you go from December 6th and December 7th, you have disaster. So this is, I mean, it's sort of hard to give a good visual understanding of what happened at Pearl Harbor because not everyone just had their cameras out to take pictures. I mean, this was people were running for their lives. So as a result, we do have pictures, but they're not as satisfying, I think, as many of us would like to be able to see what really happened. And yet it was disastrous. The Japanese had made very clear that they wanted peace with us and they wanted to enter into peace neg- negotiations. And so we were, at, we were not at a state of war with Japan. We were at a state of trust. However, Japan saw an opening. They saw an opportunity to take advantage of the weakness of America. Remember, it's asleep, sucking its thumb in a Great Depression. And as a result, because Hitler was distracting all of Europe, they could potentially take the Pacific and America would be their only threat. And so what do they think they could do, they could knock out uh, America's naval forces in the Pacific, and then they would have free reign, which is exactly what's going to happen. They're going to take out America's naval forces at Pearl Harbor, and they're going to basically have free reign. The problem is they awakened a sleeping giant in the process. So what looks like conquest on the part of the Japanese is going to come back on their head pretty soon. So Winston Churchill, this is from his memoirs. This is just a fascinating uh, thing. For those of you that are unfamiliar with this series, Winston Churchill is a key player. He was the prime minister of Great Britain. And uh, we're also going to see President Franklin Roosevelt, who's the president of the United States at this time. So Winston Churchill writes in his memoirs, I got up from the table and walked through the hall to the office, which was always at work. I asked for a call to the president. In two or three minutes, Mr. Roosevelt came through. Mr. President... What's this about Japan? Franklin Delano Roosevelt says, it's quite true. They have attacked us at Pearl Harbor. We're all in the same boat now. This is actually a defining moment because Great Britain has been standing alone. The last 19 months would be what most people in Great Britain would call hell on earth. They have had, they've been standing alone against this great malevolent evil power known as the Nazis And they have no one coming to their aid. The Americans keep saying, you know what, hey, thumbs up. We're really glad you're you're fighting that evil, but we can't help you right now. Now, I'm not saying they didn't help at all. They, They sent some different supplies over. But the way that Great Britain needs to be helped, they're not helping. Uh, The Americans aren't helping. And so this is a key line. You're going to recognize in the memoirs of Winston Churchill, he's going to get very excited I know this sounds terrible, but he's going to get very excited when he hears that Pearl Harbor is bombed. <laughs> it's like, like a gift, a gift. The devil has given Great Britain a gift because it is going to awaken the sleeping giant of America. Why is this event so important? And I could say that for all of us right now because we could be talking about Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor is you know, way back in history, right? And I could show you a lot of other moments where the devil did the same thing and he awakened a sleeping giant and suddenly the church of Jesus Christ comes to life or Israel comes to life. And so what you see is why is this so important? Well, because God doesn't want us asleep. God wants us activated. There is so much. Back in 1941, this country 
had so much truth. We had a lot more than feels like we even have now, right? It, had, it was a system of government that was a protection of the weak, and it would stand up for, uh, stand against injustice. It was a great system, and yet when the system falls to sleep and those that are supposed to use this instrument of justice and righteousness set it down and say, well, you know what, we need to think about ourselves right now, then what's the good of this thing? And it's the same thing we have with the church. Why is it so important right now that we are going through this? What looks like disaster out there, are you sure it's not doing the very service that this did to America back then and for the world? Because if the church of Jesus Christ in this nation awakens, oh, the enemy will rue the day that he overstepped. So Winston Churchill, listen to his, in his memoirs, this is what he says about Pearl Harbor. This is the way he, this is his meditations on December 7th, 1941. Okay, now I want you to enter into these meditations and sort of bask in them. Now, for those of you that uh, remember, because this is like 77 episodes ago, maybe 67 episodes ago, when I actually went through Pearl Harbor. It's been a long time. I mean, so we're going way back in the past. But uh, this is a worthy uh, reminiscing right here. Listen to what he says. No American will think it wrong of me if I proclaim that to have the United States at our side was to me the greatest joy. I could not foretell the course of events. I do not pretend to have measured accurately the martial might of Japan. But now at this very moment, I knew the United States was in the war up to the neck and into the death. So we had won after all. Now, stop right there. So we had won after all. What an interesting statement. With an exclamation point at the end, uh, does he not realize that the war is not going to conclude until fall of 1945? This is December of 1941. We've got a long time left to go, almost four years. What's he saying? You see, this is... Exactly what happens in the soul of a Christian when they awaken to the work of the cross. Yeah, well, we could be on this earth for the next 80 years, and we could be slogging through with demonic attack against us time and time again, but guess what? The victory is sure. What you see is exactly that. He recognizes that once America comes in, it's a done deal. We're going to win this thing. So he says, so we had won after all. Yes, after Dunkirk, after the fall of France, after the horrible episode of Iran, after the threat of invasion, and when apart from the air and the navy, we were almost unarmed, an unarmed people, after the deadly struggle of the U-boat war, the first battle of the Atlantic gained by a hand's breadth, after 17 months of lonely fighting and 19 months of my responsibility and dire stress, we had won the war. Isn't that an amazing statement? This is his meditations Almost four years before they actually win the war. By the way, I've studied what's going to happen in the next four years, and it sure doesn't seem that easy. And yet he is actually thinking on December 7, 1941, we've won. We've won. The enemy sure did make a mistake now because the sleeping giant has awakened. We had won the war. England would live. Britain would live. The Commonwealth of Nations and the Empire would live how long the war would last or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell, nor did I at this moment care. Once again in our long 
Island history, we should emerge, however mauled or mutilated, safe and victorious. We should not be wiped out. Our history would not come to an end. We might not even have to die as individuals. Hitler's fate was sealed. Mussolini's fate was sealed. As for the Japanese, they would be ground to powder. All the rest was merely the proper application of overwhelming force. The British Empire, the Soviet Union, and now the United States, bound together with every scrap of their life and strength, were, according to my lights, twice or even thrice the force of their antagonists. No doubt it would take a long time. I expected terrible forfeits in the East, but all this would be merely a passing phase. United, we would subdue everybody else in the world. Many disasters, listen to this line, many disasters and immeasurable cost and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. So I'm going to read that again because it is such an interesting line in light of what we are facing right now. As the church of Jesus Christ, here's what matters to me. It's like, sure, we may face difficulty and disaster, but if it awakens us, would anyone consider me crazy for getting happy about it? Would anyone consider me strange that I am excited right now that this very overplay and overstep of the enemy actually could do exactly what I personally have been praying for for years, which is that the church of Jesus Christ would be revived from its stupor and come alive and begin to function as the body of Christ in this world. I mean, isn't it a strange thought to think that right now when everyone else is in depression and everyone else is curled up in the fetal position sucking their thumb, that Eric rises up and goes, hey guys, let's leap. This is amazing. We have won the war. You see, I recognize that there's certain things that play into what I'm saying, and that is, you would say, you'd lean in and go, so are you saying the church is revived? <laughs> and I would say, I'm not exactly sure if I could say that, but I do see everything in place for it to happen right now. In fact, maybe it even needs to get a little more dark, if necessary, before it turns. We as the church of Jesus Christ need to wake up. Because if we wake up, it is even greater than the continent of North America waking up in World War II. Many disasters, immeasurable cost, and tribulation lay ahead. But there was no more doubt about the end. Well, that's a great way for a Christian to think, right there. So a famous quote from Irosoku uh, Yamamoto. I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's, a, there's something taking place, even in our country right now. Whether I, I would call it a spiritual revival or not, I don't know if I could call it that, but it's definitely something. It is a stirring. It is a frustration. It is like, hey, we can't be bombed at Pearl Harbor. It's the same type of a thing that is stirring within our nation. An indignation is, is taking place. It's like, okay, you're finally going to wake up now. You're finally going to recognize that righteousness is evaporating. Now that it's almost gone, you're going to say, hey, you shouldn't take that. That's exactly the story of World War II. Everyone is going to appease and appease and appease Hitler. He's going to take, fill the Rhineland with his troops. He's going to take Austria. He's going to take the Sudetenland. He's going to take Czechoslovakia. And everyone's like, well, you know, hey, it's none of my business. Then he's going to take Poland, and finally it's going to be their business. And they're going to be like, hey, he can't do that. Well, he shouldn't have done all the other things either. That's the same thing that's happening now. Evil is encroaching. It is taking territory. It's limiting the voice of the church of Jesus Christ. And we're, we've been letting it happen. It's like, oh, well, we don't want to offend anyone. You know, we, we don't want to actually step on anyone's toes. We're the church of Jesus Christ. You know what we do for a living? Step on toes. 
If you ever studied Christian history, Christians, in a loving way we step on toes, but Christians do not say what is popular, they say what is true. We love people too much to allow them just to die in their condition and go to hell, so we'll say exactly what they need to hear. And you know what that's classically understood as? Stepping on people's toes. Because we love them. The classic overplay. So we're going to go back and and study a classic overplay uh, in the Old Testament. It's actually one of my favorite stories. And it's the plot to wipe out Hezekiah and the nation of Judah. So this is right around 714 BC. So we're talking a long time ago. And uh, this story, for most of us, we're a little detached from the, the dynamics of the story because when I say the mighty Assyrians were coming against uh, Hezekiah and the kingdom of Judah, it wouldn't cause you any terror. It wouldn't cause you any fear because you don't know how powerful they were. But the Assyrians had not lost a battle in a hundred years. These guys were unstoppable. They even called their king the king of kings. Doesn't that sort of offend you? It's like, whoa, you calling the king of Assyria the king of kings? No, I know the king of kings, and I know he wasn't the king of Assyria. And so as a result, you see this pompous, arrogant attitude of this nation. And they were a nation built for war. And guess what they have their sights on now? Little Judah. They have already wiped out Samaria, which is the northern kingdom. So you have, the ten, you have 12 tribes of Israel, and you have two kingdoms. So you have the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom to the north, which the capital is Samaria. And then you have the kingdom to the south, which is Judah, and the capital, Jerusalem. And so they've already wiped out. And uh, I don't know, this is basically the last time we see the northern kingdoms. They're just gone forever. And so they just are going to dissipate. Now we have Judah, which is going to be the outflow of that of the Jews out of Judah. Okay, so that's the king of the Jews. Jesus is going to be of the tribe of Judah. And so as a result, we see this key point in history where if all of us were looking at this on, on, a, on a piece of paper, we'd say, we're going down. There's no way that Hezekiah and little Judah can stand against this mighty empire that has already wiped out their northern neighbor, their brothers and sisters to the north, and, which is quite an unprecedented thing. If you want to think about the 10 tribes of the north being wiped out and taken captive, that's a pretty big thing in history. Just imagine, this is a people that God fostered, right? And they're gone. They rejected God, they're gone. They've had their time, they're gone. Now we have the same thing, and they've encircled us, uh, and we are in our last little stronghold known as Jerusalem. And we can't fight it. We have no weapons to fight against 185,000 Assyrians right outside the door. (sighs) Okay, so let's do a quick test of how we're doing, all right? How how are you guys doing in this situation? Okay, by the way, it was a lot more dark than anything we're facing right now in this world, you know, in in America. And so that's, that's that's the context of this time. So here's what's amazing. 2 Kings 18.7 makes a statement about Hezekiah. It says, and he, King Hezekiah, rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Now, that's quite an audacious statement because everyone serves Assyria. And Hezekiah has this little kingdom known as Judah. I mean, it's pathetically small next to the Assyrians. It's pathetically weak next to the Assyrians. And it says that King Hezekiah rebelled against him. Don't you like it? It's like, I like that. You see, this is precisely what needs to take place in us. 
There is a movement of lawlessness, murder, fear, and deception that is coming over this land. And it seems unstoppable right now, guys. I mean, I don't know exactly if you think this is just going to be solved in a ballot box and legal proceedings. This is a spiritual battle. And as a result, the only way to stop it is if a spiritual awakening takes place and pushes back. But on paper, that doesn't look like it's happening either. Let's just be honest. It looks like the church is weak, up against the ropes. And yet, this is the final statement. I'm, I'm going to go a little more into the details of it. Hezekiah didn't immediately stand up. He sort of looked like the modern church for a season uh, here. And so let's go into that. Hezekiah, we'll call him the agreeable. I could have called him the appeaser. Because he, he knows he can't win this war and doesn't really want war. And so the first thing he's going to do is appease. 2 Kings 18, 13 through 16. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, by the way, he's a bad guy, Sennacherib, you know what his name translates to? Sin. That's actually what his name means. Isn't that amazing? There's a character in the Bible whose name means sin. He's the king of Assyria. And he's encroaching on Judah. I think if there was ever a character in history you should say no to, it would be that one, right? Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Oh, no. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, this is what Hezekiah is going to say to the Sennacherib. I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed King Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. By the way, that's a lot. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord. He's going to strip the house of the Lord to pay off Sennacherib. And in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So this should be encouraging to all of us in a certain way. I mean, it's a terrible story, right? That Hezekiah is going to strip God of his, of his treasure and give it to a foreign kingdom to just make peace. Okay, that's not a good, not a good pattern uh, for success in life. And yet what's interesting is there's very few kings of Judah that God is going to say he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah is going to be one of them. This wasn't right in the eyes of the Lord, but what you're going to see is a repentance. You're going to see a turning. You're going to see a transformation of that which at first was weak is actually going to be awakened. You see, Hezekiah comes from sort of a long line of uh, failure. And he's not inheriting a godly heritage. He's not inheriting a godly understanding. And so as a result, he doesn't know to turn to God in this situation. It's sort of like us in the church. We have a functional church system, but we don't know how to go through difficulty. We don't know how to go through trial and tribulation. So we immediately capitulate and say, oh, what can I do to make it easier for myself? And we compromise. Instead of recognizing, no, no, this is supposed to wake you up. There's a purpose for this. So Hezekiah is going to fail. And so if we look at the church in America, this is about where we're at right now. Okay, We are the agreeable. We're like, oh, what do we need to do to make everyone happy? Or are we not going to preach on this anymore? Oh, yeah, that, that's offending people. We're going to trim that out of our dialect. All right, yes. So, yeah, we'll shut down our churches. We'll make sure that everyone is safe. And we don't want anyone to ever experience any difficulty in this life. You see, as Christians, we recognize that what we carry in an hour of a plague is the one singular hope for walking through it. 
And so I really could care less what the CDC has to say. I, I actually have a lot more of a desire to look at what God's word says in a time like this. God has hope. God has answers. God has solutions. And so as a result, what you're going to see with King Hezekiah even is he needs to return to the word of the Lord. And when he does, everything is going to shift. King Sennacherib. Listen, to, we actually have access to King Sennacherib's journal. And so this is, this is actually the same time period. He's going to write, I have King Hezekiah penned into his royal city, Jerusalem, like a bird in a cage. Isn't that amazing that we could actually find this journal and have this and, and reference it? And that was right, again, at 714 B.C. or so. So we talked about Hezekiah the agreeable. Now we're going to talk about Hezekiah the awakened. Something is going to happen. 2 Kings 18. Indeed, they have delivered Samaria from my hand. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Now this is a little snippet of a longer speech. You know who was given this speech? Sennacherib. Sin, if you want to say it just bluntly. This is the enemy talking, and he's barking. And one of the things he says is, you know, that, hey, look, I just took Samaria. Look, I, Sennacherib, just took Samaria. Who among all the gods of the lands? And in, in his speech, he's going to name all sorts of different gods of the lands. I beat them. I beat this god. I beat this god. I beat this god. And you think, and here he says, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Now, the word for Lord is Jehovah or Yahweh. This is the name of God to the Jews. Okay, this is, remember the, the burning bush when Moses says, what is your name? Who am I to say is, is sending me? He's going to say, I am that I am. So when you see that all caps Lord, that's what it is. And so who's the one mentioning the Lord? It's Sennacherib. Sennacherib in his mocking rant is going to make a mistake. I know it sounds funny. How is he making a mistake? He is going to mention the God of the Jews. He is going to say, and what could your God, Jehovah, actually do for you? You know what's going to go on in Hezekiah's mind? Jehovah. Jehovah. Wait a minute. My God is not made of wood or metal. He is alive and real. My God is different. So actually the very question that Sennacherib is going to bring is actually going to awaken Hezekiah to return unto God, to return unto Jehovah, to say, Jehovah, huh, that's a good point. Thank you, Sennacherib. You see, what we see is the classic overplay. The enemy, in his mocking, is lacking self-control. You see, he doesn't have it. So self-control is a, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's something that we as the saints of God have, but the devil, unfortunately, doesn't have it. I shouldn't say unfortunately. It's very fortunate for us he doesn't have it. But have you ever noticed the, that sin in your life has that same effect? That if sin had breaks and had the ability to control itself, it would stop. Right when you're numb, you could care less, but you're satisfied enough. If it could just stay in there. But sin is only satisfying for a season. Why? Because the devil can't stop it. If he could just satisfy with you with sin forever, then you would just die without recognizing, without ever awakening. But sin can't stop. 
Sin doesn't have brakes. So as a result, it pushes too far. It's the classic overplay, and it actually causes us to be awakened. And we go, Jehovah? Jehovah, that's a good point, Sennacherib. Thank you for bringing that up. 2 Kings 19, 1 through 3. And so it was, when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. So where is he going? So Sennacherib has sent a long letter telling him exactly what's going to happen, and he's going to defeat him, and he's going to do all sorts of horrible things to him. So Hezekiah is going to go into the house of the Lord and lay it before God and say, God, what do you think? Isn't that an amazing thing? So what you see is Hezekiah, the same guy who was failing us a little earlier. You remember him? The one who stripped the temple of all its gold and silver and, and gives it. And now he's saying, God, this is what my enemy is saying. What do you say in response? Then he sent to Isaiah the prophet, and they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this, is, this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. So now we're going to see a transformation of Hezekiah. Remember he started out as the agreeable? Oh, whatever you want, whatever you want. Oh, sure, we'll give you, you know, all the gold and silver that we have. To suddenly Hezekiah the disagreeable. And I emphasize dis in there just in case you're wondering if there's a difference between what I called him at the first go around. He's the disagreeable. He's the one that's going to rebel against the king of Assyria. It's like, wait a minute. Oh, no. Not a step further. This guy, known as Hezekiah, has changed his mind on this whole thing. There is no way you're getting this country. In fact, I have a whole new confidence. I, I thank you for reminding me about Jehovah, because you're right. Jehovah is our God, but you're wrong in the fact that you think he's powerless like wood and stone. Oh no, our God lives. 2 Kings 19.6, and Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord. So this is, oh, this is the message that is coming to Hezekiah. Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So this is important for right now, just for all of us practically, at the soul level. Could you imagine if we get a message from Isaiah the prophet, and he sends it to us, says, go, go tell the church in America right now. Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. We could use that. You know, the Bible is full of this exact line over and over and over again. You know, it has all sorts of lines where it says, do not fear. No, no. You do know that I'm in control. You do know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. You do know that if God is for you, who can stand against you? You do know that no weapon fashioned against you shall prosper, right? You, you do know what the prophet is saying to you, what the word of God has to say. Then Isaiah sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. So there's a pattern in scripture that we've gone over multiple times in recent months, uh, and that is in 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. What you're going to see is exactly that right here. Hezekiah is going to humble himself before God. He is going to pray and seek God's face. He is going to repent. He's going to turn from his wicked ways. Oh God, what have I done? And what is God going to do? God is going to respond, which is why you see Eric getting excited, because I know that the God that we serve 
I know his word. I know what it says. And I know that if his people that are called by his name awaken and they are stirred in their souls unto a humility to recognize, what have I been doing? I've been sleeping when the enemy's been creeping through our house and stealing. The great thief has been up to no good and I have been just sleeping the whole while. But no more. I'm wide awake now. And as a result, I know what happens. When that people who is called by his name humble themselves, they pray and seek his face, and they turn from their wicked ways. I know what happens. I'm going to watch it right here. God is going to give a message to Hezekiah. Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. So let this be encouraging to you. This, this was encouraging to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is going to hear the word of the Lord in regards to Sennacherib. What does God think of Sennacherib? Because Sennacherib has 185,000 men just right outside your gate. He's very powerful. He's unstoppable. He calls himself the king of kings. I mean, wow, that's quite the, uh, the name for yourself. So what does God say? So this is a message to Sennacherib. It's in the word of God. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn your back by the way which you came. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return. And he shall not come into this city, says the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Bless you. 2 Kings 18.7 and he, King Hezekiah, rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So, I don't know if you guys have ever heard what happened in this story, but suddenly in the night, no one really knows how it happened, 185,000 Assyrians outside the gate are just going to be dead. <laughs> That's what happened. They all died. I mean, it's just incredible. Like, don't mess with God. Is, is a lesson here. But also there's another lesson. You see, when God's people humble themselves and they return to that place of prayer and dependence and say, God, you are the God. I mean, Hezekiah's prayer in this, which I, I'm not gonna quote just for the sake of streamlining this message, is so powerful. If you wanna look up a great prayer, look up Hezekiah's prayer in this time. But the end statement, I would love it to be this of us in this nation, the church, which I have spent my entire life in ministry speaking to a church asleep. And so as a result, it's, that's why, would you consider me strange if I got excited about the fact that we actually could wake up through this? Isn't that what I've been praying for? What I've been preaching about? How many times has the enemy mocked me and says, how long have you been doing this, Eric? And then I give him a number of years and he goes, and how, how uh, has it helped? You know, is the church healthier because of what you've done? No. So you may want to just give up. <laughs> so you have to recognize Eric is sort of excited that God actually is bringing us to a place where, yes, it could go very dark. I get that. But it also 
could turn on the enemy's head right now. The devil is missing something very important. Breaks. He does not have them. And it's actually, I think, part of the humor of God's kingdom. That God knows that the enemy doesn't have breaks, and the enemy just tries to act like he does the whole time. It's like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then his demons are like, well, what if, that, what if you get out of control? What if you can't stop? It's like, I can stop if I want. He can't stop if he wants. And so what you see is so many things being revealed right now. Even right now, when the enemy feels victorious, he gloats. And when the enemy starts gloating, he gives away <laughs> secrets. He just doesn't have self-restraint. And so as a result, as he gloats, he sort of exposes all of his plans and his plots and his schemes. We're like, we knew you were thinking that, but it's good to know now out loud that you have been thinking that all along. And so as a result, what we have is the ultimate situation for God to turn the tables. The Apostle Paul, I, I gave this scripture, I think it was on Sunday, 1 Corinthians 2.8. None of the rulers of this age knew the hidden wisdom of God, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had known what was going to happen in and through that crucifixion, they would have never crucified him. Well, do you think uh, Sennacherib would have actually come against Jerusalem and mocked and mentioned the name of Jehovah if he'd known what was going to happen? Of course not. You see, that's part of the hidden wisdom of God. It's God's sense of humor here. God's in control. And what looks like the enemy has the upper hand, are you so certain the enemy has the upper hand? Just look at the cross. If we were to stop time and just all we had was the cross, and when you see and someone says, yeah, that's the Messiah. He's the king of the Jews. Uh, well, he looks like uh, he's losing. <laughs> he's a bloody pulp of a man hanging on a tree. Does that look like victory to you? And yet what looks like defeat is actually God winning. God is turning. It's a plot twist in the story. Right there. Pearl Harbor is a disaster that is actually going to be the salvation of our country and Great Britain and Europe. I mean, it's just an incredible thought. The history books. None of the rulers of Japan knew the latent power rested in the United States, for had they known, they would not have bombed Pearl Harbor. So I'm basically taking the template for 1 Corinthians 2.8 and applying it, because we see it all the time. So in the history books, I mean, Japan, if they had known what was going to happen, the backlash that was going to happen, they were going to be devastated as a country. They would have never bombed Pearl Harbor. Yeah, makes total sense now. But remember, the enemy is blinded. Japan was blinded by its greed. They wanted territory. They were tired of being a little teeny island. That's why they were invading China at the same time. They wanted territory. All the great nations of the earth had expanded, had commonwealths, had lands elsewhere. And suddenly, Japan saw its opportunity to claim territory and to rule over it. And as a result, their greed is going to lash out at Pearl Harbor, and it's going to end, end up coming back on their head. So what else have we heard in the history books? None of the rulers of Assyria knew the latent power resting in Jehovah, for had they known, they would have not have laid siege to Jerusalem. Yeah, that was a mistake, wasn't it? But it sure looked like easy pickings. I mean, look how weak Jerusalem is. Ha! And yet if they had known who they were messing with. You know, the church is backed up, laid siege. We're like walled in in Jerusalem, and we look weak right now. We have no coordination. We're divided. We're a pathetic mess. But we do serve Jehovah. Jesus Christ is our King, is our Lord. 
uh, if we actually just awakened the power of the cross marshaled in this world afresh, oh, wow, guys, I mean, this is exciting stuff. The history books, here's another illustration. None of the rulers of this modern world knew the latent power resting in the church of Jesus Christ, for had they known, they would not have awakened us from our slumber. Yeah, see, I don't think the enemy is calculating in the power that rests in the church of Jesus Christ because it's actually the power of the cross. You see, as the system goes, as the truth has unfolded in the word of God, Jesus didn't just die. He rose again on the third day. Our Redeemer lives. Then, he didn't just rise again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he was seated down at that right hand and given all power and all authority and all things are placed beneath his feet. Not only that, but those that believe in him are in him. Which means we do our spiritual working from that position. We have access unto the Father in the name of Jesus to make our request known for what needs to take place down here in this earth. I wouldn't want to mess with that if I was the enemy. But I sure am happy I'm the one seated in heavenly places in Christ. You see, even at the beginning, when Satan is going to do his diabolical work and split uh, the ranks of the angels, he's going to take one-third. So if you divided them up into three piles... He's going to take one of the piles. How much does that leave God? Double. God has double the angels. Get this. And he's God. So who are you going to bet on? I know what it looks like down here. I know Sennacherib have surrounded the, the, all of us. Oh, we're it's looking terrible. Now remember, the devil has one third of even just the angelic host, let alone the church has God Almighty has the power of the cross, has legal victory. I'm voting with Jesus on this one. That's why I think we can get a wry smile right about now and get a little jig in our right leg going. And we can actually begin to celebrate even before we see the final results. Edward Gray, this is an interesting statement that you're going to see actually prove on the stage of time. The United States is like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power it can generate. Now, I could really care less about the United States as far as that, that symbol. I want to just say the Church of Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ is like a gigantic boiler. Once the fire is lighted under it, there is no limit to the power it can generate. So yeah, you can be impressed with the nation of the United States, which by the way is very impressive in World War II. And I've had multiple messages on that, what's going to happen as a result of this awakening. It's profound, but that's in the series, the World War II series. This is true, not just about the United States and its manufacturing capacities. This is the church of Jesus Christ. Winston Churchill, now listen to this, guys. This is, remember, this is December 7th, 1941, this is his entire impression of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. After 17 months of lonely fighting and 19 months of my responsibility and dire stress, we had won the war. England would live, Britain would live, the Commonwealth of Nations and the Empire would live. Listen to this, being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed on the night of December 7th, 1941, and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. So that's how you should sleep tonight. 
Why don't you go to bed tonight? Uh, saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation because your God is victorious. Your God has won. Your God has done it. Remember his famous quote, it is finished. Just because it's not finished yet here on this earth, that war wasn't finished either. It still had four more years. Even though we have tribulations and troubles ahead of us in this natural realm, it is finished. So we can go to bed tonight and sleep the sleep of the saved and thankful. Boy, that sounds pleasant. Jesus Christ, this could be, he's like telling us this morning, this is like worth the price of admission, right, for our daily thunder this morning. Because I live, you will live also. You see, Jesus Christ has accomplished something. And he's seated on high and he's not fretting, he's not foreboding, he's not chewing on his fingernails right now. He sees the victory. He knows the victory. He says, because I live, you will live also. And as a result, just like if America's awakened, Great Britain's saved. Same thing. If Jesus is resurrected and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, we're saved, guys. I know it looks bad, but guess what? Our Redeemer lives. I fear, this is Isoroku Yamamoto, fun name just to say, by the way. I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. Uh, may it be said, I would love to see the regime out there, the conspirers, the, those that are plotting and hatching evil plans to say this in their study tonight. It's like, oh, I'm just really concerned. I'm concerned. Why are you concerned? Just shut up. We're in control here. I'm just concerned that all we may have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. That's right. Start fretting, O oh powers of hell. The church of Jesus Christ is waking up. Father, may it be so. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.